please, to Acts chapter 19. It seems like some, not too long ago we I talked about proper focus on the Word of God, and we need to... I, I struggle being creative with titling my messages, but I hope you don't think this is a cop-out. Once again, proper focus is needed as we look at the Word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. I don't know that I will get all the way through this text this morning explaining it, expounding it. But let's begin by hearing his word. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard that the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came upon them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they continued to value them and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you have given us your word and its truth, and there is so much here. Help us to get into the shallow parts. Help us to see some basic principles that will help us dig in deeper later on. Speak to us through your word. Amen. If you recall in Acts 18, the Apostle Paul had ministered in the city of Corinth. There he met a couple, a married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, became very good friends with them. They were believers. They were able to help the church at Corinth. After his ministry at Corinth concluded, they left together with Paul. Aquila and Priscilla and Paul began to travel back toward Jerusalem and Antioch by way of Syria, Gentria, and Ephesus. And while they were at their, that first brief visit to Ephesus, the Apostle Paul was able to teach some in the synagogue, and several people there encouraged Paul to stay. Stay a little longer. We, we were encouraged by what you're teaching. And the Apostle, said, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I must go on. I will, if the Lord wills, return to you. Aquila and Priscilla stayed. And after Paul left, chapter 18 teaches us about Apollos, a young believer who was equipped to teach the word of God, and yet he didn't know all there was to know. He, too, had been baptized into John's baptism. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Aquila and Priscilla were able to disciple him, and he began preaching not just in Corinth, but throughout all of the region of the Corinthian city, Achaia. And he began preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. At the end of chapter 18, it says, He powerfully refuted Jews in public, showing the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. In today's text, the Apostle Paul had completed his business in Jerusalem and Antioch and returned to Ephesus. One of the signs of the Holy Spirit at work, you know, we read these accounts in Acts and these, the powerful revelation of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the what we interpret as exciting exciting evidences of the Holy Spirit happening in several passages in the book of Acts kind of confuses. These were during special times. And we wonder, why don't we see the Holy Spirit like that anymore? I hope we can kind of uncover some of this as we go through this. But if you want to know that the Holy Spirit is at work, if you want to see one of the signs that the Holy Spirit is at work, you need to have a little bit of discernment and a little bit of wisdom. You might not see a lot of excitement, a lot of people shouting, a lot of people hollering. That's not evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. It may have been then. One of the signs of the Holy Spirit at work is 
wherever people are sincerely hungry for the knowledge of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is already there. Whenever people are hungry for the knowledge of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is already there. I know of a church denomination. I'm not going to mention the church denomination. Everybody would know what I was talking about. They have a very special focus on part of their denomination that just plants churches. And one of their basic philosophies is to follow a business model to plant a church. They say, they believe, they teach that if the money is not there, God is not in it. I think that is so wrong. If the Holy Spirit is working in a pastor's heart and lays a burden on his heart to go to a certain city or a certain town or a certain crossroad, if the Holy Spirit has laid a burden on that man's heart, he can go broke preaching the truth, being obedient to God. And that's okay. To say that the money is in it is a sign that God is in it is deceptive. It's foolish. One of the signs of the Holy Spirit at work is wherever people are sincerely hungry for the knowledge of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is already there. Paul had found such a group at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. You don't have to be aware that the Holy Spirit is working to have any light from the Holy Spirit within. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you remember in chapter 18, Luke told us about Apollos, who knew only John's baptism. In Acts 19, again, Luke brings this subject up again, John's baptism. Some disciples who only knew of John's baptism hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Did not mean that the Holy Spirit was already working in them. They hungered for the Lord. They hungered to know, and he sent them Paul. We want to have proper, careful focus on these texts as we move forward. What is Luke teaching us? Better yet, what is the Holy Spirit teaching us through Luke? Three things that I would like to glean from this passage, and I don't know that I would get into all of them. We need to, do need to reserve time to share the table. There's baptism. There's the Holy Spirit, 
and the effective influence of the word of the Lord. Baptism, Holy Spirit, and the effective influence of the word or the powerful preaching or teaching of the word. Remember, chapter 18 talked about Apollos. This chapter talks about disciples at Ephesus. Both of them had some ignorance about baptism. And I must confess, I see and I've seen it my whole life. There is an ignorance about baptism still. And I think you are aware of it. The church is divided over baptism. You have Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Catholics, Greek Orthodox. I mean, everyone does it a different way. Baptists will only baptize anyone after the salvation and it's full immersion only, or you're not properly baptized. Presbyterians will baptize someone after they've gotten saved, but it has to be the first time they're baptized. And they're only going to use a little bit of water, right? Can I hear an amen for that? Presbyterians also baptize the children of believing parents. Because we believe, since they are a son, that is a son or a daughter of believing parents, they belong to the church. They are part of the community. And some other denominations say, oh, that is so popish. That is so Catholic. That is so wrong. We are divided over baptism because we are ignorant of it. The Baptists believe that Presbyterians are wrong because we don't use enough water. Methodists will do both according to your preference. Catholics don't really call it a baptism, although it is part of the ceremony. They call it a christening. Greek Orthodox baptize full immersion, but bowing three times forward. All in all, most Christians have just agreed to disagree about the mode and method of baptism. And I think we've missed it. We're ignorant. We, are, we shouldn't be divided. Because of these disagreements, the Christian's understanding of baptism has become diminished. A lot of people say... I'm so tired of the arguing. I don't really get it. What does it matter? Understanding it is just a little bit too slippery. We can't pin it down. I'd like to share some thoughts. Perhaps it might help. The word that we draw baptize from comes from the Greek, baptismos. It means to, in the Greek, in the Greek, it means to dip or wash, depending on the context. However, 
For Old Testament Israel, we need to, most of the modern church or much of the modern church take that word baptize since it means dip or wash. It must, that must mean immerse. But for Old Testament Israel, we need to ask what mode was used, what method was used. Depending on the purpose, if you study carefully, depending on the purpose in Old Testament Israel and in relationship to the ceremony where it was required, both methods, sprinkling and washing, both methods could have been used. And I emphasize those words, could have been used for a reason. In Hebrews 19, excuse me, Hebrews 9, 9, and 10. The author of Hebrews is talking about the Old Testament ceremonies, the sacrifices, and what was required during them. According to this arrangement, the Old Testament sacrifices, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. The author of Hebrews is trying to teach us that during Old Testament times, those washings, those ceremonial washings, didn't really save. They just reminded people of their uncleanness. For example, for the Levites, Old Testament Levites in Numbers 8, Verse 7, the Bible says, Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them and let them go with a razor over all the body and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. Now, if we were going to insist that everything that connected with baptism or spiritual washing or, or representative washing were to be followed, then we would have to go all the way back to Old Testament Israel, and anyone who came to be baptized needed to be shaved. Also, that was for the Levites, those who would devote themselves to the Lord. If anyone touched a dead body, they were considered to be unclean. And in Numbers 19, there was a way of cleansing, not just themselves, but everything in their household, everywhere they lived. It's kind of like they had to treat you like you were in COVID quarantine, and then the priest would come with a ceremony to your home before you could leave and go and worship at the tabernacle or the temple. Numbers 19.17. For the unclean, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt sin offering, and fresh water shall be added in the vessel. Then a clean person, a priest, shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the dwelling, and on the furnishings, and on the persons who were there, and on whoever touched the bone, or the slain, or the dead, or the grave. 
I am not at this time presenting argument to defend the Presbyterian mode or way of baptism. That's not what I'm trying to do here. Hebrews talks about various washings. It suggests that there was another way that may have been used under certain circumstances. This comes down to what is called the mikvah. That was a method of full immersion. There is evidence that such things existed. These big tanks or baths of water where you just didn't lay down. You had to get standing up all the way under the water. But there's not much evidence of their existence before the time of Christ. We don't know that they existed, that practice existed until our current era. And most mikvahs, and there haven't been many, most have been found in synagogues, a few have been found in homes of the wealthy. So there could have been a full immersion baptism in Old Testament, but it was never connected with temple worship. We definitely know that sprinkling was used. Archaeologists have found that some began using the mikvah during the time of Christ, but again, it's never been connected to temple worship. What, we are to, what are we to learn from this? We're not talking about the mode. In the Old Testament, whenever the scripture talks about washing and translating that specific word, washing, rakats, Zakah or Mayim, depending on the context, all just refer to washing, cleansing, getting it clean. Doesn't specify a mode. What are we to learn from this? The first thing that we can know about baptism, ceremonial washing of the Hebrew in Old Testament times is this. If you were an Israelite and you wanted to approach God, you had to be pure. You had to be pure. And cleaning the outward vessel, the body, was just representative, reminding them that the inward part was also necessary to clean. If you were an Israelite and you wanted to approach God, you had to be pure. That's the first thing we learn from this. It boils right down to the basics. It has nothing to do with mode or the method. What is baptism about? The second thing we learn about it is if you wanted to serve God, the ceremonial washing set you apart from everyone else. If you want to serve God, ceremonial washing set you apart from everyone else. For the New Testament believer, yes, that's you. For the New Testament believer, for the modern Christian, 
If you want to belong to God, baptism sets you apart from everyone else. It doesn't save you. It reminds you to whom you belong. You're all familiar with 1 Peter 2. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. That's what Peter, that's how Peter describes those who have been baptized in the name of Jesus. Baptism sets you apart from everyone else. As I mentioned before, the baptism of our infants, children of believing parents, parents are responsible to teach the gospel to their children. Mom and dad, you're responsible for the spiritual welfare of your children. The church is here to help. The church is here to counsel. The church is here to support. But these are your children. Pray with them. Teach them. Catechize them. And baptizing them as, as infants is a statement of faith in God's promise to save them. Why would we do that? Why would we think that? Aren't children born innocent? And mom, dad, you know, if you have little ones in your house, I don't care how, you know they aren't that innocent. They will defy you as early as they can say no. He doesn't present himself as a theologian, but Thomas Sowell has a very wise statement concerning this. Each generation, each new generation is born, let me start over. Each new generation born is, in effect, an invasion of civilization by little barbarians who must be civilized before it is too late. Some of you may have heard Wally Balcom's statement, they're demons in diapers. We're born sinners. And it's not just teaching them how to behave, it's teaching that they need a savior. So that is baptism. 
If you want to serve God, ceremonial washing sets you apart from everyone else in the Old Testament. For the New Testament believer, you belong to God. Baptism sets you apart from everyone else. The Apostle Paul asked these disciples, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We don't see this in the text, but I cannot help but believe that they understood what it was talking about. They understood that Old Testament ceremonial washings, whether it were sprinkling or immersion, they understood that in order to approach God, you had to be pure. You had to be cleansed, not just in body, but in heart and soul. John came preaching repentance. Repent, for the Messiah is coming. The King is coming. Prepare to live a holy life in obedience to Him. And that's what these disciples had done. We're just following what John taught us. And Paul said, John pointed you to the Messiah. I'm here to teach you about him. And it's as if these Ephesus disciples said, because of Christ, I have been set free to worship God without fear of his wrath. I will therefore identify with my Savior through baptism. And that's what you and I should do if we believe in him. We have been set free to worship God. We have been cleansed of our sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because of the baptize, baptism that we identify with him, we should be willing, happy to know, being set free from our sin and cleansed and stand in righteousness before his Father, we should be willing to follow him gladly, eagerly. That's just my first point. We'll get to the another two next week. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together and for your word and its truth. We pray that you might speak to our hearts as we come to your table. Let us remember your gift. Let us taste of its grace. Let us remember your sacrifice. Let us realize what it provides for us. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.